Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we face a truly impossible task. Knowing you of our own power and will. Lord, you are the God who speaks. You are not a dumb statue or idol. We have shaped after our own image, but you have shaped us and made us and created us so we might worship you before your throne. Lord, give us the grace this morning to approach your throne with all confidence and courage that we might meet Jesus there, that we might find rest for our weary souls, and that we might see that your word truly does accomplish all it intends to do and that it never returns void. Lord, do this work which only you can and give us the reverence and humility without which we cannot understand your truth, especially your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you catch that at the beginning of chapter 2? 14 years. Fourteen years. I don't know where you were 14 years ago. I didn't know a single person in this room 14 years ago. Same might be true of of many of you. I don't know where you'll be 14 years from now. And in all honesty, some of you might not have 14 years left. It has nothing to do with age. We simply don't know when our time on the earth is up. That's what strikes me about the beginning of this passage. 14 years. Years, you think about the amount of time that Paul had spent preparing for his ministry. Remember what we've seen in chapter 1 is that Paul 
did not kind of stumble into this Christianity thing, but he was called in the most dramatic way possible by the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. You'll remember that Paul was formerly known as Saul, a murderer of the church. We see in Acts that, in fact, he was standing over the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the church dragging people away to prison, quite literally murdering the people of God. Yet God called him, and immediately we see in Acts that he begins preaching the gospel, and the only thing people know about him is that, look, this man who was murdering us is now preaching to us the good news. He spends 14 years being taught by Christ, prepared by Christ, planting churches on his missionary journeys. And then he returns to Jerusalem. It says he went up again. To Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus as well. We're going to look at four things in this passage. We're going to look at a place, Jerusalem, the holy city of God. We're going to look at an issue of pain or conflict between true brothers and false brothers. We're going to look at purity, the defense of the true gospel. And we're going to look at peoples. Not people, but peoples. The S is important, and I, I think we'll see why. So Paul and his companions, they enter into the holy city of Jerusalem. If you know your Bible, you'll know that Jerusalem is no insignificant place in the Old Testament. It is the heartbeat, the throbbing center of God's redemptive work for his people Israel. And yet here they come into this holy city, a Jew, a Greek, and an apostle. It's like the beginning of a bad joke. Um, they, they're telling for us the history of God's people in place. You see what I mean there? You have an apostle, God's witness, his ambassador. You have a Jew and an uncircumcised Greek. The literary force here is that this is humanity. This is the human race apart for the whole. These two men, along with Paul, representing all of us, Coming to Jerusalem. It's important we don't miss that. The holy city of God. Think about the history. Think about the sights and the smells and the sounds of of the Mosaic institution, the sacrificial system, the Levitical priesthood, David's throne, Solomon's temple. For a brief period in history, Israel was unparalleled in their dominion over the Near East. Ground zero of all the ceremonies and feasts and rituals is the city over which Jesus wept towards the end of his ministry, the city in which Paul persecuted the church, the city outside of which Jesus was crucified, and as we read in our gospel reading, the city in which the gospel began, but not where it would terminate. Did you catch that when Jesus was talking? He says, the gospel must spread from Jerusalem, the implication being it must not end here. We see that clearly in the Great Commission. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The holy city of God. Why, is it, why, do I, why am I belaboring the holiness of this place? It's because the way that, that Paul tells us he enters in is to, is to help us understand that it's no longer about Jerusalem. Something has so dramatically changed in the history of redemption that the doors have been blown open and now he's coming into this place which was 
prior to the advent of Christ, off-limits in every meaningful way to the Gentiles, in every spiritual way, yet Paul comes in with an uncircumcised Greek. He goes up because of a revelation, referencing chapter 1, in order to what? Is it to pick a fight? (laughs) Is it to quibble over a theological point? No, Paul goes to Jerusalem with his friends, with his companions, to meet with the apostles. Not in order to get their validation, but to make sure that they have unity on the gospel. And friends, if chapter 2 doesn't happen, we are not here today. You might think that sounds crazy. It sounds crazy, but I believe that with all of my heart. If they don't get this right, if they don't get the movement of God's redemptive history right, if they cannot come to unity on, are the Greeks in or are they out? Is this a, is still mainly a Jewish thing? Or is this for all peoples? Then we're not here today. There's no Ephesians. There's no 1 Corinthians. There's no letter to Titus. There's no in town. So they don't go to, get a, to pick a fight. They go for the sake of unity and for the sake of you. You'll see that in verse uh, 5. The last two words in that verse might be preserved for you. This meeting was for you and for the sake of the gospel. And though they didn't intend to pick a fight, a fight was brought to them. And that takes us from our first point, the place, Jerusalem, the holy city of God, to our second point, pain, conflict. If you look at verse 4, I'm sorry, 3 and 4, and you compare those two, you see that there's very clearly the contrast between a true brother and a false brother. I would just say to you, as an aside, having good friends is really important. Having good friends that love Jesus is even more important. And when you have something difficult to do and there's a battle to be fought, it's a lot easier with friends. That might seem like an obvious point, but I think that's something to take away from this passage. Having good, godly friends that love Jesus is important, and you would do well to find some if you don't have some, and to be that for somebody who needs it. And this is the conflict between a true brother and false brothers infiltrated to destroy the freedom we have in Christ. What is, what is freedom to you? What do you think Paul's getting at here when he's talking about freedom? Is he talking about the freedom to, to choose whatever we wish, to define ourselves however we like? I think what he's getting at here is in the context of the first century. The old has gone. The new has come. Freedom in Christ is not merely freedom from ceremonies and rituals, but it is freedom from sin itself. It is freedom to be the new creation that you are, to embrace this new reality that says something about you, that that because of Christ, you are not only free from the curse of sin, but it's power over every area of your life. Yet they've slipped in to spy that out. Don't miss the, the... There's some interesting literary things going on here that I, I think are fun and, and nerdy. Don't miss the kind of double entendre here that Titus is brought along as an uncircumcised Greek. And these false brothers, professing Christians, yeah, as Paul calls them, false brothers, are spying out the freedom we have in Christ. They want to know what's really going on with Titus. 
and the Gentile church? Are you really one of us in the way that really matters? It's grotesque. Yet that's the conflict. Paul calls them false brothers. Let's talk a little bit about what makes them false. Follow with me here. There's, there's three things I think that are significant. And if you don't get every word here, that's okay. Um, but I think it's important to provide some defense for this. They deny God's universal plan of salvation, that the gospel must spread to every nation, tribe, and tongue, like Jesus says. What makes them false? They deny the universality of the gospel. What makes them false? They cannot accept the Gentile believers as brothers unless they first become Jews. You have to start over with Moses in order to get to Jesus, in other words. Spiritual adoption through Christ, not enough. They must be physically altered. They must bleed as well. They deny the nature of God's grace. Number three, why are they false? They deny the nature of God's grace, unmerited, unearned, totally independent of, and untethered to any earthly ritual or ceremony. Chapter three of this letter. Paul will go on to say that you are false brothers because you have missed the point of Christianity. He will say, if you, if, if you have a way to look, he will go on to say in verse I'm sorry, in chapter 5, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He goes on to say, anyone who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. So, So stick with me here. Is this really about circumcision? No. Many of you might be circumcised. I really don't care. Um, (laughs) This is not about this ritual. The ritual, remember, we said apart for the whole, Barnabas and Titus, the whole of us, humanity. This is another part for the whole. Circumcision represents the whole Mosaic order, the whole um, Old Covenant, the Mosaic institution with all of its ceremonies and rituals and and smells, the, 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 the tangibility of it. Circumcision was a rite that God gave to Israel as uh, a way to mark them out. But it didn't just mark them out and sanctify them. It it also was an evidence of God's grace because what? Instead of cutting off all of them, he only cut off a part of them. Instead of making them lead out, he had mercy towards his people. Anyone who came into the nation of Israel had also to be Circumcised, but all of this ceases with Christ. Why? What does the New Testament tell us about Christ? That he was cut off from the land of the living for you. He didn't just undergo partial judgment for you. He bore the full brunt of God's wrath for you in your place on the cross. And as he bled, he was circumcised from the earth. And he went down to death. We're not circumcised as a ritual today. Um, medically, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know if it's better or worse. I, I really don't know. There's medical people here you could, you could ask about that, but it's not about, it's not about the right. It's, it, it, is, it is about this, and if you hear nothing else, hear me here. What Paul is getting at is, what is our basis for our righteousness before God? In the great tribunal of heaven, what will you use 
What will you take with you? What must God accept for your righteousness? The good that you do and the good left undone. What can you take with you on that day that he will accept as righteous? This is, this is a, a difficult question for, for us to face because we think of ourselves typically as inherently good people with, with some flaws, um, as Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes often um, meditates on. Are we mainly good with just a few little bad parts or are we mainly bad with a few? And then they go flying down a fast hill. Uh, this is a, a real hard question to answer, but that is Paul's point here. Circumcision is not about the right itself. It is about what do you accept as your basis for, for standing before God. And he will say that if you try and go back to start at Moses, go back to the Old Covenant, you are beating a dead horse. And eventually that carcass will cave in. And if you accept that, then you are a false brother. Because you have cut off the grace of God and severed yourself from Christ. You cannot bear the weight of God's law, brothers and sisters. You cannot, but Christ did and he can. And he has done so for you. So if you find yourself trembling at at the thought of what it might look like to stand before God's throne... In the great tribunal of heaven, trust that on the cross there was an exchange where Christ has given you all of his righteousness, all the merit that God requires you have in him. And may that bring peace to a troubled conscience. If you'll stick with me here, 4, 5, and 6, it's kind of the epicenter of this passage. Paul's unyielding defense for the purity. We talked about the place, the pain of conflict, and the purity of the gospel. Friends, how tempting it is in Portland to alter or tweak or nuance the gospel so as to not offend. We feel this pressure constantly, and yet Paul says as an encouragement to us that he did not yield in submission even for a moment, as I said earlier, so that the gospel might be preserved for you. Why is it so important to have good friends? So that when we are tempted to yield, when we are tempted to submit, that we can turn to our brothers and, side, brothers and sisters on either side of us and seek encouragement. We don't just need new courage. Our brothers and sisters do, so they can fill us when we are weak. And we can do the same for them. That's why it's so important to be surrounded on both sides by people who are unlike us, yet love Jesus and can encourage us. For you, if you take anything away today, please take that. Well, we're running out of time, so I want to finish up with this last point. We've talked about a place, pain, the importance of gospel purity. I want to talk about peoples, and we'll finish here. Um, in our day, we are, we are constantly to- told that profiling people on the basis of, of any distinguishing mark is, is very wrong. If there's any heresy to, uh, of today, that would be it. Thou shalt not profile. We ought not target people because of their estate. Um, however, 
Paul seems to say that that is actually part and parcel with our service towards. So, if you're doubting me here, just follow along. Um, we can't get into seven, eight, and nine too much. The the big idea there is that it didn't matter if people had influence or not. They didn't add anything to Paul or to his message. It was it was rather for the sake of unity that he met. He's commissioned by James, Cephas, and John. They gave him the right hand of fellowship. So they go to the Gentiles. And then Paul puts on a, a level with the gospel what? Remember the five points of Calvinism? Make sure you win when you have to get into a fight in the church. Make sure you never submit. Make sure food's on the table. Make sure the kids are well-behaved. Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. I will confess, I don't really know how best to preach this to you. There are people in our congregation who have dedicated massive chunks of their lives and money to serving the poor. I would, I would, I would recommend that you go talk to Myung McGuire, you talk to Richard White, you talk to Katie Prentice and Nick Prentice, who even in just recent months have, have gone to reach people. There, there are poor people in, in our city, no doubt. Um, I, I've never had to live on, live on the street. God, God has been so gracious to so many of us that there, there is food on the table. We don't have to wonder if there's going to, we don't have to wait in line at, at the rescue mission for a lottery to know if we're going to have a bed at night. Um, I, I just want to, uh, to mention one thing here and, and then try and land this um, plane. Uh, Paul says we are, we are supposed to look for people who actually need stuff. We, it, it's okay to profile, but not in, the, not in the anachronistic, vicious language of identity politics, which is so much in our bloodstream. But in the hope of the new creation, he says that the gospel and poverty end up forcing us into the same sort of places, right? The gospel and where there are poor people end up forcing us in the same kind of places. In the early 90s, there was a term that was coined called the 1040 window. Maybe you've heard of this um, term before. If you, if you picture, it's a part of the world. If you picture the earth as a globe and you put a belt around it, and then you turned it about halfway around from where we are now, you would be looking at the 1040 window. Is this making sense? You're talking about from Western Africa to the other end of Southeast Asia, essentially. It's the 1040 window. Look it up. It's the highest concentration of poverty in the world, poverty we don't even begin to understand in our country, and also um, the highest concentration of unreached people groups. Um, Statistics are all over the place. Some say that there's still 2,000 languages that don't have the Bible. 2,000 languages are people groups that don't have the Bible translated into their language. Some of the poorest people in the world are also those without any access to the gospel. This is not a guilt trip. And I know it seems crazy. <laughs> I, I, I can't go. And it's not really a, a, a pitch to, to go but if you feel like going, maybe you should go. 
There is, there is a window of the world where people are needed, but if you don't, if you don't know the language and, and you don't know the culture, then, then maybe you can spend the next 14 years figuring it out. 14 years is a long time. And certainly none of us are, are apostles since that office has closed, but perhaps if for, for a frail human who used to be the murderer of the church like Paul, if he can take 14 years um, to begin his missionary efforts, then, then perhaps there are places around the world or places around Portland where we can start planting seeds that God might bring to fruition in 14 years if he grants them to us. Local missions, global missions, the truly poor are truly lost, and the truly lost are truly poor. We're, we're going to wrap up here, and, and actually what I wanted to do is just ask a, a couple of questions for, um, for, for meditation, for the Lord's Day, hopefully. For, for you, Lord's Day doesn't end when you leave, but there's chances to talk with your, with your family or maybe other people about um, the sermon. So just a couple of questions to, to prompt some conversations maybe later in the day, um, and then I'll pray for us. Um, when you're heading to work this week, think about what courage. We call the sermon New Courage. What does new courage look like for you? Where have you been afraid in the past? What does new courage look like? Maybe when you're heading to work, think about what that looks like in the face of an assault on the gospel. Um, in what ways is your home structured around the gospel? What do conversations about Jesus look like? Um, for dads and husbands especially, um, what does not going back to a covenant of works look like in terms of how you shape your home and in making it a grace-filled place. Who can, number, two, uh, number three, who can you serve that is poor, unable to serve you back? In other words, who can you have over for dinner that can't have you back? Um, and lastly, who can you come alongside as a companion, a friend, through the trials of life? In other words, find good friends. Hold on to them for dear life, for our friend and older brother Jesus has held on to us and given us new life. Would you pray with me? Father, if we're honest with ourselves, many of us have been false brothers and false sisters. to those in need, and even to our Christian family. We have not been honest about the truths of the gospel, and we have, we have altered in, into oblivion. But Lord, would you encourage us this morning? Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you remind us that, that our failures do not define us, but Lord, your perfect obedience in our place, your shepherding care over us, has become our greatest hope. So with faith, would we look to you? Would we apprehend all of your benefits? And Lord, would you begin to plant seeds in our hearts that may, may grow over the course of many years to become compassionate and generous people who will not yield in our love for the gospel and will not yield to the poverty of those all around us. Lord, be with us as we go. Be with my brothers and sisters this week who are, who are struggling through uh, sin and struggling with the effects of um, looking for work and, and difficult situations, relational difficulties. 
um, marital, marital trouble, um, troubles at home, struggling with issues of health and, and finances, those who are at the beginning of life and those who are at the end of it, all of us, Lord, would we come together as one body and look forward with courage to the new creation and know that this world is not our home. We pray all of this in your Son's precious name. Amen.